0: Oh, hi. (laughs) Is it time for the message? (laughs) How many of you ever been in a restaurant and you look around and you have a let's say a family of five and they're all gathered around the table and mom and dad and the three children all have their phones out looking at their phones. And when it gets even it gets even worse when the, the waiter or the waitress comes up and says, well, can I get you today? I've seen this. And they continue to stare at their ridiculous phones. Have you seen that? Here's the simple fact. Smartphones are changing us. They really are. And I would be the first to admit that that there are a multitude of good uses for smartphones. I I have one. I use one. um, I use it every day. I use it throughout the day. I use it for ministry. Um, I remember the first time I purchased a smartphone... Uh, one of the ones with the big keyboards on it it 's about as big as a, a brick, and I was so excited to use it and uh, But I soon began to realize that our phones have a propensity to change the way we do things for for ill as well. I want to have you uh, open your bulletins for a moment and take out a sheet of paper that says, this month's book recommendation. This is our read it selection that we feature uh, the first Sunday of every month. And the book that we have highlighted for you today is a book by Tony Rinke. And I can tell you that I, I have a deep respect and admiration for this author. This is hot off the press as it's only been uh, on on sale for about the last month or so. And th- the reason I should say that we do the Read It selections is to make uh, you aware of good quality Christian reading material that will encourage you, equip you, enhance your Christian walk. We have uh, three of these available today for $11. If you're interested in picking one up, you can uh, find them out at the welcome table and uh, Tony Benner can help you with that. My suspicion is these will be gone quicker than you can say Steve Jobs this morning, and if we need to order more, we'll certainly do that and keep a tally for you. There are so many things that I can say about this book, and you can read the review for yourself, but one of the things I do want to highlight is this, that also has to do with our computer use and, and what we call social media. Have you ever noticed that many people in our culture would say things online that they would never look you in your beady eyes and say right to your face. And I can tell you that for the last six or seven years, I've been reviewing books, and I put those books online. Well, about oh, roughly 5% of those reviews are are very, very critical. The rest, the vast majority are very positive, I review books that I love and commend to other believers. But from time to time, I'll, re- re- I'll review a book that I don't like and that I think may even be unbiblical. What I do when I review a book that that I'm critiquing is I always imagine that the author is sitting right in front of me. That we're at Starbucks and I'm going to say, listen, Rob Bell, here are the 12 problems I have with your book. And I need to do that with graciousness and respect. Well, one of the things that Renke uh, challenges, and you can read this in in the the, uh, paper before you at the bottom... The author challenges his readers to carefully evaluate every tweet and post online. Number one, will this ultimately glorify God? Will this stir or muffle healthy affections for Christ? Three, will this potentially breed jealousy in others? Four, will this fortify unity or stir up unnecessary division? That is just the the tip of the iceberg. I read this book last week and was deeply moved by it. I should tell you, uh, you might think it's kind of a surfacy book, Twelve Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. It's not the easiest read in the world. Uh, There are some very deep things that the author is wrestling with, and I want to commend it to you. Before we open the Word of God, we also want to begin something brand new at Christ Fellowship. And you can, if you would like, find a, a copy of Um, What I'm going to share with you out also at the, the, the Visitor Center, the welcome table, and that is this morning we're going to start an emphasis that we're calling to every nation. And I've been convicted lately, I think I've mentioned this a few times over the last several weeks, and I also have with the Elder Council, that is I've been convicted that sometimes I feel like we get a little insulated in Whatcom County. Raise your hand if you feel like you agree with that. Like, we're just really stuck right here. And I think it would be really, really healthy as a church family if we would broaden the scope of of our affections and our interests to look to the nations. And so I want to show you a few slides this morning. And what we'll do the first Sunday of every month is highlight a different nation. Let's look at that first slide. We want to highlight the, 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 the Czech Republic today. Now, before I put the map on the board, I'm kind of curious. How many of you would have been able to pinpoint where the Czech Republic is? You see that it's landlocked here in Central Europe. It's surrounded by one of my favorite countries, Germany, and also Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, and Austria. Let's look at the next slide. You can get a little bit better idea of how it's, how it's landlocked by these different countries. The Czech Republic, I should say, one of the reasons we began with the Czech Republic Really twofold. My all-time favorite tennis player is from the Czech Republic. Anyone want to throw a guess? Who is it? I'll be really impressed if anyone knows. Who? Oh, that's a good guess. Bjorn Borg from Sweden. What's that? Who said that? Hey, Tom, you pick up the Rehnke book. On, on the house, okay? Pick it up. Because that that is, I wasn't planning on doing that, but that is impressive. Yvonne Lendl. Wow, he was the guy. I had to be like Yvonne Lendl when I was in high school. I, I bought his clothes. Oh man, I tried to the accent, I couldn't do it. That's the first reason I chose the Czech Republic. The second reason is I have another hero that is more, much more significant than Yvonne Lendl. His name is Jan Hus. Uh, in English, John Huss. And Jan Hus was uh, really a, a pre-reformer, and we'll talk about him in a moment. The Czech Republic uh, is filled with over 10 million people. 96% of those people in this country are Slavic. It's one of the most developed economies in Central Europe with a, a huge emphasis on manufacturing and industry. In terms of religion, there is, some of you know, a turbulent religious history. Believers, uh, as you're well aware, suffered greatly during the the communist regime. And you need to know that uh, nearly 80% of the Czech Republic has no religious affiliation whatsoever. And that's really the the main reason I wanted to share about this little country with you today is there are so many people that need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Less than 2% of people in the Czech Republic would consider themselves to be evangelical. 20% Catholic, and the thing that fascinates me the most is that it is one of the most atheistic countries in all the world. And you know that that comes largely as a result of the the influence of of Joseph Stalin and also uh, Adolf Hitler and some of the things that took place during World War II. I did mention Jan Hus, John Huss. He is actually, as a Bible-believing Christian, still highly regarded by the Czechs. His words, Pravdi Veditzi, which is translated, "...the truth will prevail." is the national motto of the Czech Republic. The truth will prevail, yet 80% have no religious affiliation. Here are a few prayer needs. And I close with these, and then we'll open the Word of God. I want to encourage you to to pick up uh, this piece of paper at the Welcome Center. If we run out, we'll, run, uh, we'll, we'll copy some more off. And, uh, Pat, I... Where's Pat at? Pat, I automatically thought of you as I began to to do this. Because I said to Carmel, I said, you know, we should probably run these off because Pat Smith is going to want to put this in her notebook and pray for the nations. Jerry and Judy. I can see Jerry and Judy and Gary, of course, putting these in a notebook and praying for the nations. Can you imagine what would happen five years from now? You're going to have... 50 to 60 little thumbnail sketches of nations that we can pray for. Here's a couple of prayer requests. And these are prayer requests that actually come firsthand from my good friend who served uh, not too far from Prague, the capital of the Czech Republic. First, we can pray for new churches to be planted in the Czech Republic. New churches that will teach the the unadulterated gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can pray for the spiritual bondage and the heaviness that exists among the people. And indeed, it is great. We can pray for revival and reformation, which is what I pray for here at Christ Fellowship. We can pray for the Czech uh, Protestants to reclaim their Reformation heritage. It is a rich heritage that was laid mostly by Jan Hus that was later um, added uh, uh, to to his great work by Martin Luther a hundred years later. And then finally we can pray that leaders would be raised up, powerful leaders, uh, godly leaders who are unafraid to proclaim the word of God to the people that God loves so much. So let's take a moment and pray for the Czech Republic. But Father, we pray for uh, this little country in Europe. We pray that you would bring revival and reformation. I pray that uh, church planters from all around the world would find their their path, that they would find their way to the Czech Republic, that many people would see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for those who are atheists, who are in bondage to various worldviews, that they would hear the gospel, that they would respond favorably to the, to the beautiful truth found in your word. And God, I pray that maybe you would draw someone here from Christ Fellowship to one day minister in the Czech Republic. We know you love these people and that we recognize there are many people groups even within this small country. We ask that you would touch them with your grace, uh, all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to... The book of Psalms, as we continue our study that we've entitled Summer in the Psalms, Psalm chapter 4. And while you're making your way to Psalm 4, would you please stand as we read the word of God as the people of God today. Psalm chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good... Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. We thank you, Father, for the Psalms. I ask that you would now minister to your people. And I pray uh, especially for anyone who is uh, under uh, adversity, under persecution where false things are being said about them, where their character is on the line. God, we have all been in this position where untrue things were said, uh, where some seek to, to hinder the work that may be done in the days ahead. And so we, we pray that by your Spirit you would open the truth to the people of God today, that mighty things would happen in our hearts and our minds. You would mobilize us. Uh, to action, mobilize our hands, mobilize our feet, all to the glory of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most memorable phrases that I'm sure we all know goes something like this. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. I remember uttering those words on the playground as someone would come up to me and Tease me for the jeans that I was wearing because they weren't the most popular jeans. Or tease me for the shoes that I was wearing because they weren't the most popular shoes. And I remember uttering those words, Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. The adage actually was meant to be a response to what I did, that is, experience verbal bullying on the playground. However, if you have ever been slandered... If you have ever had someone undermine your character, if your name has been unjustly accused, you will freely admit that the line, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is the most ridiculous thing anyone ever wrote. Because we know that when people utter hurtful things about us, when they seek to damage our character, it hurts like nothing else. Well the title of the message this morning is simply character assassination. And when someone assassinates your character as I've already inter- as I've already alluded to, they call your integrity into question. I don't know about you, but I can't think of many more things that get under my skin is when someone seeks to undermine your personal integrity. What is integrity? Integrity is the quality of being honest, but it goes deeper than mere honesty. It means having a strong moral principles or being a person that is morally upright. R.C. Sproul says it like this. He says the word integrity comes from the word integrate. Suggesting that a person who's has a, a life that is whole or wholesome... Sproul says, in modern slang, we say, "That's a person that has his act together." She's a person that has all her ducks in a row. He's got it all figured out. Character, as J.C. Watts says, is doing the right thing when no one is looking. The great basketball coach of the UCLA UCLA Bruins, John Wooden, said this, Be more concerned with your character than your reputation. Your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think about you. Former Senator Alan Simpson said, If you have integrity, nothing else matters. If you don't have integrity, nothing else matters. Which I think really articulates what I'm trying to communicate today, is that integrity is of the utmost importance for a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The great American, Thomas Paine, said, character is much easier kept than recovered. And so you can see how important personal integrity truly is. The Word of God places a high priority on a life of integrity. Consider a few verses from the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 101 verse 2 says, I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. Proverbs 10.9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his way crooked will be found out. Proverbs 11.3 The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Proverbs 27, the righteous who walk in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Proverbs 28, 6, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. And finally, Proverbs 28, verse 18, that says, whoever walks in integrity will be delivered but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall we see this vivid contrast in the pages of the old testament between the the man or the woman of integrity and it's in contrast to the one who walks in crooked paths or dishonest paths and so when our character is assassinated it is no laughing matter when our, when our integrity is on the line, it is no small matter. And so our challenge as followers of Jesus is to do this. And this is where it gets really, really difficult. Is when our integrity is called into question, when our character or our integrity is assassinated, our challenge as Christians is to rise above the accusation. And that is one of the most difficult statements you'll hear when it comes to personal integrity. What is a godly strategy when your character is under fire? How shall we respond then when our integrity is questioned? There are four headings this morning that will help to guide our thoughts and frame an answer that I trust will leave you in a place where you are encouraged and edified as we leave later this morning. The first heading is this. I want you to see the posture of the godly. The posture of the godly. If you look at verse 1, we'll, we'll see together this posture. And the first thing we recognize is that the psalmist is, is in a position of, of weakness and vulnerability. There's three things that we see. First, we see that he is in distress. Verse 1, "'Answer me when I call, O God, my righteousness. You will give me relief when I was in distress.'" The Hebrew word translated distress means anxiety or affliction. It means to be pulled apart at the seams. You see, what's happening here in the heart of King David is, is he is filled with anxiety. He's filled with distress because people are pointing the finger at him. They are assassinating his character. And when that happens, it, it causes your heart to be filled with thoughts of anxiety. Look at verse 2. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Here's a a question to his accusers and almost a rebuke to his accusers. And here we see that the psalmist is not only in distress, but he is in a position of helplessness. Now, unlike verse 1, the word helplessness does not actually occur in verse 2. I'm reading between the lines here. However, when we read between the lines, we can sense the the utter helplessness of the psalmist for a false accusation. I need to clarify that here. When someone says something that is true about you, if you lack integrity, that's not a false accusation. That's actually a, a rebuke that is headed in your direction. But this morning, we want to focus on false accusations And this false accusation tends to leave the one who is being accused in a sort of no man's land. And we'll discuss that in a moment. Also in verse 2, we see that the, the psalmist is in a position where he's filled with shame. And the word shame comes from a Hebrew term that means reproach or to be filled with disgrace. Imagine here you are going about your business and someone says something about you. Or in our culture, post something online about you that is sent out to hundreds or thousands or even millions of people, and now your character is on the line. You are filled with reproach or disgrace. Now, when your enemies bear false witness about you, it puts you in an awkward position to say the least. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I can imagine those of you who have been accused of something that was not true. I remember the first time it happened to me, I was in 5th grade. 5th grade I was accused of of doing something that I had no idea about. Some individuals actually got in trouble with the law and they began to point the finger at me. I remember in the 7th grade a situation arose where my, my teacher was sick one day. Well, in this art class, he had configured the tables with assigned seating. So it was little Johnny sat here, little Susie sat here, and it's little Davy Steele sat here, right? And so there we were in the classroom. Well, when we got to the classroom and realized that Mr. Cordenoy was not going to be in the room, the students just sat wherever they chose, Well, guess what happened? Tony Blozel sat in little Davy Steele's seat. And Tony Blozel was a bad little seventh grader during that class period. And the teacher, the substitute teacher, and I know some of you have been in situations where you served as substitute teachers, it's this awkward moment where you look at the boy in question and you say, Young man, what's your name? Are you with me? And Tony Blosel said, oh, I'm Davy Steele. It's like, whew, I was falsely accused. So it, it puts you in a position where if you were overly defensive, it actually makes you look guilty. Or if you choose not to respond, it makes you feel guilty. And I know I told the hunting story several weeks ago, and I got in big trouble with several of you. said, you never told us what happened. So I'll tell you how this story ended. The next day, I went to Mr. Cordenoy, who was also my football coach. And I said, Mr. Cordenoy, you need to understand, yesterday, Tony Blozel
1: was a bad
0: little 7th grader. And when the teacher pointed him out and asked what his name was, he said, my name's Davy Steele. You need to understand that that was not me. Now, Mr. Cordenoy knew me. He knew that I was a, I was a good little boy, right? <laughs> well, guess what happened? Later that afternoon at football practice, Tony Blosel, who was a big, tough hombre, came up to me and uttered some words to me that I cannot re-utter in church. And he got right in my face, and I could smell his nasty breath, and he cussed me out. I was so scared I didn't know what I was going to do. You see, when someone utters a false accusation, it puts you in this, this kind of a no-man's land where sometimes you don't know exactly what to do. So my question this morning, has that ever happened to you? Have you been falsely accused? Has, has your integrity ever been called into question? If it has, and my suspicion would be that it's happened to many of you multiple times in your lives. If that's the case, you understand the, the sting, the hurt of a false accusation Now you may be tempted to respond, number one, by taking legal action. I remember Vice President Dan Quayle said that we live in a litigious society where there's way too many lawyers and way too many lawsuits, and I actually agree with Vice President Dan Quayle. Well, in our culture, that's exactly what happens is you are falsely accused, and many people go right to their lawyer and they sue the person. Other people find the person, and they take the matter in their own hands, and they invite them out to the parking lot. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay. And then other people try to defend themselves in a public forum. There's all kinds of ways that we can respond. I want to give you a few biblical principles, ways that you can respond to false accusation. Number one, when your character is assassinated, admit the sting of the accusation. In a moment, we will see the, the brutal honesty of the psalmist, which is a, a tremendous example to us. But too often, I've found, is that when false accusations are levied against us, we try to minimize the pain in our lives. We almost go back to the old adage, sticks and stones will break my bones that names will never hurt me. Husbands, you might say that to your wives. Yes, someone said something that came out in the paper Someone said something at church and it began to spread in the church. Someone said something at my place of employment. You say to your wife, it's not that big of a deal. Guess what? It is a big deal. And so principle number one, admit the sting, admit the hurt of the accusation rather than internalizing the hurt that could actually lead to the sin of bitterness. Number two, when your character is assassinated, ask God for help. Ask God for help. Tell God what is exactly on your heart. In a recent interview, an evangelical leader who had experienced some deep, deep pain in his life that came as a result of some pain in his marriage said this. He said, if there's anything that I've learned through my idiocy over the years, it's that honesty and transparency are always more fruitful than hiding And abandoning the people and the structures that God has put in your life always leads to disaster. And so when your character is assassinated, be brutally honest and ask God for help. And that's exactly what we find the psalmist doing in this passage. And it's a pattern that as you read the psalms, you see repeated over and over and over again. Well, that moves us from the posture of the godly to the plea of the godly. And it's a twofold plea that I want you to see also in verse 1. In verse 1, we see the psalmist saying this David says, Answer me when I call, O God, my righteousness. Once again, we, we see this throughout the psalms, as I've already indicated. I just want to give one example, and there are many. In Psalm 26, 1. The psalmist says, Vindicate me, O Lord. Have you ever said that when someone assassinated your character? You say, Vindicate me, God. I can't say anything in a public forum. I can't defend myself, and sometimes it's best not to defend ourselves. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Answer me when I call. Number two, also in verse one, we see that he, he utters this plea. Be gracious to me and hear what? My prayer. You see, the pleas of the psalmist, the pleas of the psalmist are vivid examples of prayer. Now, if I were to ask you, if we were to take a survey this morning, how many of you struggle with prayer? My suspicion would be the vast majority of you, myself included, would say, prayer sometimes is a struggle for for a, a vast variety of reasons. Sometimes I feel like my prayer just hits the ceiling and bounces off the ceiling. Other times I just feel like I'm too busy. Other times I've had people say, I just don't know what to say. Other people say, I don't know if I'm doing it right. And so there's all these objections, but prayer at the end of the day is simple communication with God. Here's what John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, says about prayer. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God. And that's what we find the psalmist doing. Answer me, O God. Be gracious to me, O God, and hear my prayer. Bunyan goes on to say that, that it's the, the affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and the assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to His word for the good of the church with submission to the will of God. Simply put, prayer is communicating with God. Prayer is talking to God. And in verse 1, prayer is crying out to the living God. There are six principles I want to share that help us become like David here. So that we can become the kinds of men and women and boys and girls who can say that we are uttering pleas to God Now, this principle, these six principles I want to share with you are grounded in the book of Hebrews. I want to have you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. In Hebrews chapter 4, in verse 16, the writer of Hebrews sets forth one of the most incredible sentences that we will read in all the pages of Scripture. He says this, Let us then with confidence, I want to draw your attention to that word. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There are six principles, as I've already indicated, I want to share. First is that our prayers should be bold. Our prayers should be bold. Notice again in verse 16, Let us then with confidence. That word confidence comes from a Greek word that means boldness or courage. We are to utter courageous prayers to God. I can tell you that recently, as, even as early as this morning, or as recent as this morning, I've been uttering these prayers to God, saying, God, I don't know how you're going to pull it off, but you say in your word, you have not because you ask not. And so what is it? Is it a a wayward spouse? is Is it a wayward child? Is it financial difficulties? Is it specifically in this passage, wrestling with someone, either near them or very far away from them where they're assaulting or assassinating your character? Here we are to pray prayers that are filled with boldness, that are filled with courage. Number two, our prayers should be honest. Our prayers should be honest. David's prayers are typically highly honest and highly transparent as he pours out his request to God. This is one of the things that I really like about the Bible. You get to see the biblical characters with all their warts and all their flaws. What am I talking about? Noah got drunk. I mean, don't you think that God would have eliminated that? God doesn't want us to see... This this drunk person? No, he includes it. What does David do? David commits the sin of adultery. He has Uriah the Hittite murdered. You would think that those would be eliminated from the fabric of Scripture. You have the example of Samson who was was tricked by a prostitute. You would think that that would be set aside to, to make him look better. But no, we see all the warts and all the foibles and all the follies But here we see that David is completely honest and transparent. He does not always have his act together. He says in Psalm 5.1, Give ear to my words, O Lord. And listen to this. Consider my groaning. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? You're just like, I don't even have words for it, God. I am hurting. I am wounded. I am bruised. I am groaning. In chapter 6, verse 2, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. I am languishing. He says in the next chapter, chapter 7, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. A person that could understand David's fate was Martin Luther. After the diet at Worms, Luther was a hunted man his whole adult life. He never knew if his next step would lead to being burned at the stake. And so he, with King David, would pray, "O oh God, in you I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers. Our prayers should be honest. If we're hurting, we share our hurt with God. If we're grieving, we share our grief with God. If we're lacking in any area, we share that deficiency with God. That leads to number three. Principle number three is that our prayer should be bursting with faith. It should be bursting with faith. If you go back to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 16. I've already hinted at the, the word translated from the Greek, confidence. But this word also has Latin origins. And there's two words that come together. The first is con, and the second is fide. Most of you know what fide is. It's faith. The word con is with. And I remember the first time I learned about the, the Latin origins of the word confidence. It's so cool. With faith. Have confidence. What's that mean? That's not what it means. It has Have faith. Have a big faith. Have a massive faith in God. And so that's what we're called to be like. Our prayers should be bursting with faith. The fourth principle, our prayers should be eager. They should be eager. Hebrews 4 says that we are to draw near to the throne of grace, which means to approach someone with a request. In this case, God. Whenever I go to Safeco Field... And if you don't believe me, please find Jereen or Abby or Nathan to verify this. But every time we go to Safeco Field, I always get accused of walking too fast. It drives me insane. Because this is me at Safeco Field, right? I want to get there before anyone else. I want to get in line. I want to get our seats. I want to get the autograph. I want to see what's going on at the safe. Right? Why do I do that? Because I have nothing else better to do? No, because I'm eager. Is anyone with me? I'm eager to see these players on the field. In like manner, our prayers also should be eager. And I would ask this. How would our prayer lives be revolutionized if we became like that crazy walking pastor at Safeco Field? Where we woke up in the morning and we're ready for prayer. We're ready to go to battle. But how often is it that we arise and we wake up 20 minutes later than we intended. And we get behind the eight ball and we skip breakfast and we skip our devotions and we skip prayer. Next thing you know, we're at work and we get busy at work and we come home and we fully intend to spend time with the living God. But what happens now? We're really tired. And then we get up the next day and we do it over and over again. Can I have an amen? amen. Yeah. Oh, that's not a good time to say amen. Right? <laughs> I tricked you. I'm just kidding. But I think this is something we can all relate to. And so the amen is rightly placed. Number five, our our prayers should be expectant. In Hebrews 4.16, the writer is expecting that his needs will be met. In this case, he is expecting to receive mercy and grace and help in time of need. And the Apostle Paul takes the identical approach in Philippians 4, verse 6. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. That's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. He is expecting that God will answer him he anticipates that god will be gracious he banks on the fact that god will hear his prayers he's not like a teenager who at dinner time asks mom or dad for the keys of the car and they know in the back of their mind it ain't happening right rather we go to god and we anticipate that god will answer our prayers Number six, fervent prayer then is a sign of our faith in God. When someone assassinates your character, your initial response, my initial response, my initial response is to take care of business. Anyone with me? Oh man, I get riled up on this one. I think I see the psalmist getting riled up as well. The plea, however, of the psalmist reminds us That there is a better way. And that leads us to the perspective of the godly. The perspective of the godly. And here we find a God-centered perspective. Instead of the psalmist taking matters in his own hands, he has a a perspective that that honors and glorifies the Lord. Look at verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. The first thing, I, first thing I want you to see here is that God distinguishes His people. And we see that when the psalmist says, The Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. That phrase, set apart, means to be separated. It means to be distinct. It means to be treated specially. Are you saying that God treats His people specially? yes. We are set apart. And Paul, Peter the Apostle highlights this in 1 Peter 2. He says, we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people of God's own possession. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. This week I've been reading a book by a well-known author who I would consider to be, humbly, a heretic. And what this author believes is that every person will be saved. That's not what 1 Peter 2 says. 1 Peter 2 says that there are some who are numbered in the chosen race. There are some who are a royal priesthood. There are some who are a holy nation. Some are a people for God's own possession, but not all. And so we see that God distinguishes His people. Secondly, God delights in hearing the prayers of His people. And I want you to stop and just, just linger on that for a moment. That's something I think is evangelical. Sometimes we take for granted. Think about that. God loves to hear from you. A few weeks ago, I read a, a new book by Condoleezza Rice called Democracy. And it it was, I don't do this very often, but it was such a wonderful book that I wrote Condi Rice a letter to thank her for this amazing book. Now, I have to tell you that deep down, deep, 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 like way deep down, it would be really cool to hear back from her, right? Really. When Abby was about nine, I encouraged her to write a letter to President Bush because she had asked me, Dad... Um, I I really like President Bush and I really like the kinds of things he's doing, but people say mean things about him. And I said, well, have you ever thought about writing him a letter? And she's like, I remember the look she gave me, like, why would I do that? I said, because you're an American citizen and you have the ability to write the president a letter. And so we got online and got the address and she wrote the president a letter. About two and a half weeks later, he got a... uh, Abby got a response back from President Bush with a photograph. And you say to yourself, he didn't really read it. We don't know if he read it or not. We do know this. Someone on his staff sent a letter back. And so there's something about being heard from someone like a President Bush or a Condi Rice. It's like, wow, why would they listen to me? Now, forget Condi Rice and President Bush and think this. The God of the universe, the God of the universe, he delights In hearing our prayers. He loves it when we send him a note. He loves it when we send him an email. And he loves to respond to the prayers of his people. The psalmist makes a plea in verse 1. He affirms that God hears his prayers in verse 3. And God is greatly glorified in meeting the needs of his people. As they wait upon him and offer prayers to him. A verse that touched me probably 15 years ago, and if I were to, you know how you begin to catalog verses, this is my favorite, and this is my favorite, and then you, all of a sudden, all the verses are your favorite, this is one of them. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, that says, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No, I has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Did you catch that? That we serve a God who acts for those who wait for him. That is, God finds great delight in working for you by answering your prayers. Notice a few principles. When someone assassinates your character, remember that God knows your heart. And remember that he is ultimately the one that you are accountable to. Second, when someone assassinates your character, remember, as we've learned in Psalm 4, that God hears your cries for mercy. I can tell you when my character has been assassinated and I cry out, sometimes it feels like there's no one listening. And the Bible says the opposite. When we cry out, God is listening and he delights to answer our prayers. Number three, when someone assassinates your character, remember the example of, Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 says that he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see, if there is anyone who understands the sting of false accusation, it is the only pure and spotless and sinless man who ever lived. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen the posture of the godly. We've seen the plea of the godly. We've seen the perspective of the godly. I want to close by having you look at the fourth heading with me, namely the pursuit of the godly. And this, as we will see, is a, a steadfast rep- pursuit. First of all, look at verse 4. The psalmist says in, in these stunning words, Be angry. Did, did you read that in your Bible? Be angry. I hope that when you hear about the sin of abortion, you're angry. I hope that when you hear about sex trafficking that comes just north of us on the border, or you hear sex trafficking that takes place in Thailand, that that angers you. The psalmist says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. And so a Christ-honoring attitude may involve righteous anger. Notice the psalmist does not say, never be angry. Rather, he says, be angry and do not sin. Which Paul picks up on in Ephesians 4. He says, Be angry, do not sin. Do not, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Number two, The godly person trusts in the Lord. The godly person trusts in the Lord in the midst of persecution. This is what we call radical reliance on the living God. We trust in Him when the chips are down. Number three, And as I penned this and as I typed it into my computer, I thought to myself, I'm not a good example of this at all. It's this, the godly person maintains joy in the midst of persecution. That's exactly what the psalmist demonstrates for us here. Look at verse 6. There are many, many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. John Piper says that the heart of saving faith is a delight in God who, has a, who is satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ. That means this, that the good fight of faith is at its root a fight for delight. It is a fight to mean satisfaction in God against all the enticements of the world and all the deceptions of the devil. And listen to these final words. The fight for faith and future grace is a fight for joy. It took me a long time to figure this out. When I would battle discouragement, when I would battle mild cases of depression, when I would battle melancholy, When I would battle getting down in the dumps, I began to realize that the fight for faith is a fight for joy. And we need to fight for that joy on a daily basis. Finally, the godly person rests in the providential care of his creator. The amazing conclusion to this chapter is found in these words. As David writes, in the midst of these unjust accusations, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. And what that says to me is that he is able to sleep when his character is falsely maligned. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. The old Puritan writer John Flavel said The God is ever doing you good. Be you always abounding in his work. His providence stands by you in your greatest distresses and dangers. Do not then flinch from God when his service and duty is compassed about with difficulties. Oh, be active for that God who is... Every moment is active for you, which agrees with Isaiah 64 that he finds great delight in working for you. Isaiah chapter 43 in April, if I remember, these are some of your favorite verses. Say this, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, notice not if you pass through the waters, but when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I will give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. This morning we have seen the posture of the godly we've seen the plea of the godly and the perspective of the godly and ultimately the pursuit of the godly and my challenge today to you is that when your character is assassinated and it will be that when your character is assassinated god is greatly glorified when you cry out to him our challenge is to rise above the accusation, to maintain a godly perspective, to maintain a godly pursuit. And if your character right now is in the crosshairs, my challenge to you is to cry out to God to maintain that godly perspective, to maintain that godly pursuit, and know that your conquering Savior went before you, that He was despised and rejected unjustly, the one who bore your shame on Calvary's cross will empower you. It is Christ, verse 8 says, that will make you dwell in safety. And so you see, we don't need to take our accusers out to the parking lot. We don't need to get rough with our accusers. Rather, we, we roll it all over onto God. We cast our anxiety on him Because Peter says he cares for us. And the psalmist says he will make you dwell in safety. Let's pray together. Father, I don't think there is anyone here that has not uh, been the victim of an unjust accusation. And God, we realize that uh, if history is any indicator that we will face more unjust accusations in the future. And so I thank you for the pattern that we see in Psalm 4. I thank you for the psalmist who is so transparent, who is so honest, who shares his grief, who shares his distress and anxiety, who demonstrates his helplessness. But in spite of all these things, he cries out to you and realizes that you are a God who loves to hear our prayers And so would you encourage this, your people today? Would you not only encourage them, but would you challenge them and stir them up as we have uh, taken some extended time to look at principles that that slow out of these eight verses? God, as we leave today, I ask that your your spirit would be doing mighty things in our hearts, that you would be uh, breathing fresh encouragement to men and women, to boys and girls, reminding us of the great power of the gospel. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished on the cross for our sins. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.